Father, thank you for the Word of God, the inspired of the Holy Spirit record that we have on our phones or in our laps, translated faithfully into our language in a multitude of versions. We are richly blessed, and we give you grace, great praise for this gift. Um, where would we be have you not, had you not spoken to us? And do you not continue to speak through this word you have spoken? And so we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would speak to us through this theme and through the, the texts that are attached to it in your word so that we might be equipped uh, as your people to be devoted to the things that you've called us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, um, The Great Ascent, The Struggle for Economic Development in Our Time, economist Robert Heilbronner recommended visualizing ourselves doing the following, step by step. So I want you to think with me for a few moments what reality looks like for about four and a half billion people. Number one, take out all the furniture in your home except for one table and a couple of chairs. Use blankets and pads for beds. Number two, take away all your clothing except for your oldest dress or suit, shirt or blouse. Leave only one pair of shoes. Number three, empty the pantry and the refrigerator except for a small black bag of flour, some sugar and salt, a few potatoes, some onions, and a dish of dried beans. Number four, dismantle the bathroom, shut off the running water, and remove all the electrical wiring in your house. Number five, take away the house itself and move the family into a tool shed. Number six, place your house, the tool shed, in a shanty town. Number seven, cancel all subscriptions to newspapers and magazines and book clubs. It's really no great loss. You can't read anyway. Eight, leave only one radio for the whole shantytown. Number nine, move the nearest hospital or clinic 10 miles away and put a midwife in charge instead of a doctor. Number 10, throw away your bank books or your debit and credit cards, your stock certificates, your pension plans, and your insurance policies. Leave the family a cash hoard of $10. Number 11, give the head of the family a few acres to cultivate on which he can raise a few hundred dollars of cash crops on which one-third will go to the landlord and one-tenth to the money lenders. And finally, number 12, lop off 25 or more years in life expectancy. Now, the next time you're tempted to think that you don't have enough money, don't compare yourself to re the relatively small number of people in the world who have more than you do. Compare yourself to the billions who have less, most of them far less, including those who lived in the time in which our text was read. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. God has given you and given me and given us material blessings. And have you ever asked yourself why? Why has he provided us with so much? Well, you don't need to wonder. Paul tells us why 
in the very next chapter of what Joe just read for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. You can look there with me. It says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower, that would be us, that would be our financial resources, and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that, so that what? Well, prosperity theology would finish this sentence so that we might have and live in wealth, showing the world how much God blesses those who trust him. But Paul isn't a prosperity theologian. This is the way he finished it. He says, you'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. God comes right out and tells us why he gives us more money than we need. It's not so we can find more ways to spend it. It's not so we can indulge ourselves and spoil our children and grandchildren. It's not so we can insulate ourselves from needing God's provision. It's so that we can give and give generously. Now, the, uh, we've been considering, as we've been going through this short sermon series, if you're a guest with us, we normally walk through books of the Bible, just chapter by chapter or verse by verse, but we've paused these last several weeks to, to do a, a bit of a topical series where we're going to be hopping around in the Bible and looking at various texts, and the theme has been devoted. We've been using Acts chapter 2 as a paradigm for what the early church was devoted to and seeing what we can learn from them and then where we have opportunity to do so, seeking to evaluate our own lives in, what, in light of what the Holy Spirit was doing in this early church community that we might conform ourselves more to that vision. And so we've already considered several aspects of fellowship. One of the uh, things that the early church devoted themselves to was the fellowship. And I've been doing over the last several weeks a little bit of a, of a mini-series on fellowship. And this is the last one today. Um, we've looked at the importance of gathering and growing and guarding the fellowship. And this morning we're going to look at the last theme of fellowship, which is giving. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but the most common expression of fellowship, the word fellowship in the Bible, is that of giving, far and away. If you look up the references to koinonia, which is the Greek word for fellowship, more often than not, it is attached to sharing financial resources. And so this is a very big aspect of fellowship. Unless you think, if you're a guest with us or a newer Christian, probably the only thing you ever think or hear Christians talk about is money. And I want to tell you that I've been a pastor almost eight years, and I think this is my first sermon I've ever done on it. And I'm not even talking, it's one point of three. So I want to dissuade you from thinking that this is a big uh, agenda for me. Uh, it's a big agenda for fellowship. It's a big agenda for God's word in terms of what we're preaching on these days, which is why I'm preaching on it, not because it's a particularly hobby horse of mine that I like to ride every two or three months to goad the people of God into giving more money. So let's talk about this very important aspect of fellowship today, this, the role that giving has in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. So here's the first one. We're going to look at three aspects of giving in, in the scriptures and what they have to do with uh, our call as Christians and our call to be devoted to the local church. So here's the first one. 
sharing with the church, sharing with the church. This is the first aspect of giving. It doesn't start first and foremost with dropping a check in a plate or putting a credit card on a push pay account online or uh, dropping cash uh, in the church office or something like that. It doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with sharing. In fact, this is what the early church did. So I want you to go back with me to Acts chapter 2 and, and see this aspect of fellowship played out in terms of their early life together. So we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. By the way, that's the last two sermons. We're going to have the next two weeks, Lord willing. We're going to look at next week the breaking of bread and then following wrap the sermon series up at the end of March, right before the last uh, the Resurrection Sunday service and on April 1st. So, Lord willing, by Easter we'll be, we'll be wrapped up here. So we're going to look at the breaking of bread and the prayers in the next two weeks. But this week, the fellowship. Now, I want you to notice verse 45 and 46. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this is what the early fellowship of these Christians look like in this newly born church in Jerusalem. And you notice where the emphasis of being devoted to the fellowship falls. It falls on sharing and selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to all as any have need. Now, a couple of things to note here. First of all, the Bible is not against the ownership of private property. This is not a call for somehow a vision of Christian communism where everybody just comes into the church and dumps all their stuff and we have a big garage sale every week or a flea market and everybody just comes around and gets what they want. The Bible makes it clear that private property is to be honored and it's valid. It's all through the scriptures. And therefore, what they're doing here in Acts chapter 2 is a voluntary, informal, but powerful sharing of their possessions that's fueled by love and not by a coercion. In fact, why would they need to share in Acts chapter 2 like this? Did you know that hardly anybody was from Jerusalem? When the Holy Spirit came and fell upon these people, there was a bit of a celebration going on called Passover. Okay, or, the, or Pentecost. Pentecost was getting ready to occur, and everybody was here in this area. Pentecost had arrived. It's according to chapter 2, verse 1, you notice, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Well, of course they're all together in one place, because that's where you gather when you come to Pentecost, and there's all the, it's, it's very clear that when the Holy Spirit falls and begins giving uh, tongues of, uh, and, and all these gifts coming upon the people, that the reality is, is that many of them are not from the area. You see in verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Perithians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, uh, Pergia, Fergia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. There's people from all kinds of nations here. And when the Holy Spirit falls, like he normally does, he creates a bit of a disruption. He just invades the time and the space and says, hey, I'm going to make about you know, several thousand Christians here through the preaching of a sermon. Where are these people going to live? 
What are they going to do? They're away from their homes. So this is a unique thing going on, okay? What it talks about here as being as them selling their possessions and distributing is a spontaneous reaction to what the Holy Spirit is doing because nobody has anything. They're here. They want to be about what God's doing. God's gathered this new church in Jerusalem, but nobody's really from here. And so they have to distribute and share and invite each other into each other's homes of the residents that do live there. Okay, so I just want to give you a bit of historical context, not in any way to undermine the importance of our sharing together, but just to, just to describe more and give you a broader example that this is not necessarily 21st century America here, but that we have to take these principles and apply them faithfully in our, in our own context. Look at Acts chapter 4. We see this sharing coming up again in Acts chapter 4, verses 34 through 37. There was, Luke writes, not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we see again this beautiful picture of sharing, of, of making sure that in the church there were not needs that were going unmet. That's the principle. That's the principle. There must not be a legitimate need among us. That is our calling as the church of God. There can be many wants among us. There can be many things we wish we had. But there must not be no food. There must not be no shelter. There must not be the most basic needs that we need to survive. And so God's call upon us as a church is to share with each other such that we make sure each other's needs are all met. Romans chapter 12 verse 13 underscores this as well. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 18. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Hebrews 13 verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Listen, giving is in this way, sharing what we have to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters is not optional for us as the people of God. Jerry Bridges says, we are commanded to share. It's an act of obedience. We owe it to those who need something to share with them. This expression of fellowship is not an option drawn from our feelings of pity and compassion. It's a duty commanded by God. We must wean ourselves from the attitude that giving to those in need is something that we may or may not do, depending on our feelings. The issue is not whether to give, but rather what needs of all those that come to our attention we should respond to. End quote. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother, a fellow Christian, in need, yet closes his heart against him, which is a, a reality, or John wouldn't bring it up, how does the love of God abide in him? 
In other words, John is perfectly willing to call into question the reality of a person's conversion on the basis of whether or not they're willing to share and meet needs of fellow Christians. Very comfortable calling into question the reality of somebody's conversion. Because if your heart is not moved by the needs of a brother and sister in Christ, then how does the love of God dwell in you, John says. Here's some beautiful examples of that. Would you look with me quickly at Philippians chapter 2? I was listening to something that John Piper was talking about. He's a former pastor up in Minneapolis. Um, Many of you know him. And he was talking about this idea from Philippians chapter 2, and it just struck me, wow, what what a wonderful example of giving these people are. And so I want to use them as an illustration. The best illustrations, in fact, are, I think, biblical illustrations. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, reminds us, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's sharing, right? Be mindful of the needs, the interests, the concerns of, the, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't just look to your own interests. Paul doesn't say don't do that. We're going to do that, right? Love, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. He assumed you're going to love yourself. Nothing wrong necessarily with that. It's a, it's a natural reality. But he says we should be as concerned for our neighbor and as concerned for others' interests as, as we are for our own interests. And what examples does he give of what that looks like? Well, first of all, he gives the example of Jesus in verse 5. <laughs> I mean, could there ever be a more gripping example of someone who shared with us in our needs in our Lord Jesus Christ, who looked at us in our helpless poverty, our helpless spiritual condition, and willingly gave of himself, sacrificed everything to meet our need. That's why John can say, if you see a Christian in need, and brother, sister, you're not willing to meet that, you know nothing of Christ. Because this is what Christ did for your soul. It's what he did to raise you out of spiritual death and bring you into heaven. So Jesus is the primary example, but he also gives two more examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look at chapter 2, verse 19 of Philippians. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him, Paul says, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 21, for they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. You know what happens when you seek your own interests above the interests of others? You do not seek the interests of Christ. But when you seek others' interests as much or above your own, you seek the interests of Jesus because Jesus is interested in other people. He's interested in meeting the needs of others. And so we, as his people, are to do the same. Look at Epaphras, or Epaphroditus, verse 25 and 26. I have thought it necessary... To send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. See, the Philippians were concerned about Paul and his needs, and so they sent Epaphroditus to come meet his needs. And Paul is writing this letter back to them saying, hey, thanks for sending him. And look at verse 26. For he has been longing for you all, since he's been here with me, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. What a marvelous man. He's distressed because people know he's sick. 
They don't, he doesn't even want people to know that he's doing bad. He's so interested in other people and blessing them. He's like, oh no, they heard that I was sick. I mean, what kind of selflessness is this? Verse 27, indeed he was ill near to death. And he's grieved that the Philippians have to know about it. But God had mercy on him, and not only him, but on me also. <laughs> Can you imagine the value this guy is to Paul? Of course. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Notice verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Just a marvelous man, a marvelous example of what Jesus does for people, in people, and through people for the benefit of his people. And now, why do we do this? Why does Epaphras do this? Why does Timothy do this? Why did Jesus do this? Well, we do it because we're members, Epaphras, Timothy, Paul, Philippians, us. We're all members of the same body, right? We belong to each other. And therefore, each other's needs are our needs. And those who are on the receiving end of sharing also have a responsibility to share. So this is not like the, the vision of the church is that there's a bunch of sharers and there's a bunch of receivers. That's not the vision of the church. The vision of the church is there's a bunch of sharers and there's a bunch of sharers. Okay? So not every, but not everybody is able to share equally at, at various times. And so there will always be needs in the body to some degree. We will all find ourselves, I believe, at some point, at, at some level, whether it's financial or not, but we'll all find ourselves on the needy end. And that's when the body steps in and shares and meets those needs. And when we'll find ourselves in a, in, a, in a more blessed end and we'll be able to be generous and share. This is why it's so important that we all work if we can. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, for even... When we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So this is not a free handout. But also, Ephesians 4.28, to the former thieves who had come into the membership of the church, Paul says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have to, something to share with anyone who is in need. That's the biblical vision. You say, well, he's... He's been a thief for a long time. He probably just needs to sit around and we need to minister to him. No, Paul says he needs to get a job so he can help other Christians. This is not a self-pity uh, welfare program. This is a biblical, personal responsibility, but we're all walking through a fallen world. We're going to get beat up by life and uh, unexplainable, catastrophic stuff like Ecclesiastes and Job talk about that don't fit the rules is going to happen to us and we're going to find ourselves in need. And guess who we turn to? our brothers and sisters in Christ, our church family, so that we can receive help from them. And so that's the vision. We share with each other. We make sure all of our needs uh, of, our, of our body are met. So if you have a need, brothers and sisters, you have a responsibility to make that known. If we, I mean, we can't read your mind and see in your pocketbook and all that stuff, but let your needs be known to your church family. It means talk to people. So the, we want to help you. And this church has, a, I would argue, a, a tremendous Holy Spirit-given, grace-enabled track record for meeting people's needs in our body. It makes me proud. I know all of our pastors join me in that. It makes me proud to be one of your pastors to see how 
eagerly and cheerfully you contribute to each other's needs. So that's the first one, sharing with each other and sharing with the church in our need. Number two, support for the church, financially speaking, support for the church. Turn with me to Galatians. If you're in Philippians, just go back a couple of books to Galatians chapter 6. And let's read together verse 6 through 10. It says, Let the one who is taught the word, that is the church member, share all good things with the one who teaches, the elder, the pastor. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, that's interesting. Hold on a second. I'm going to stop there. You guys know the reap what you sow principle, right? But do you know the context in which it's given? The context it's given is in financial support of the church, specifically its leadership and and the elders who are called to preach and teach. So he says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In other words, you want to get from, you want to get benefit from the word of God taught to you you want to get benefit from the ministry of the church, you got to sow into the church. You have to sow financially into a church to reap the benefits that that church will give you. It's a reciprocal idea. Then verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, For in due season, we'll reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. So notice verse 6. It says, let the one who has taught the word koinonia, all good things, with the one who teaches. Same Greek word, share, support. So one aspect of fellowship is giving financially to the support of the church that its leaders might be equipped and supported to preach and teach God's word, shepherd the flock, and so that the ministry of the church might go forward and be sustained. So this not only includes financial support for the church for its ministries and its pastors, but also for the financial partnerships that the church has with missionaries. Right? So this is a very biblical idea too. Uh, let's go back to Philippians chapter 1 and see again Paul use this concept of fellowship in relationship to missionary support. Philippians chapter 1 verse 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for, all, for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your Koinonia in the gospel, partnership, same Greek word, in the gospel from the first day until now. And so what is he, what is he, how does he think about this fellowship that he enjoys with the Philippians? Their partnership in the gospel. Now what does that look like? Turn to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is where he unpacks what he means by partnership in the gospel. Chapter 4 verses 15 to 20. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. In other words, you were the only ones that really financially backed me in my ministry. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, 
you sent me help for my needs once and again, even when I wasn't among you, like you were still caring for me. And he says, verse 17, not that I seek the gift. This is what every true godly missionary and spiritual leader says. It's not about the money. It's not about the gift. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I'm seeking your blessing, your reward, your eternal joy. That's what I'm after. And in verse 18, he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, the man we just talked about, the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. See, when we take it upon ourselves to meet the financial needs of God's missionaries or pastors or whatever, if we meet, if we meet them, what does God do? God takes it upon himself to meet your needs. That's the clear point. You take care of my men and women, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. I'll supply every need that you have. And he, that's why he can say this partnership, this koinonia, is a relationship of giving and receiving. It's not like one guy's getting everything and nobody's getting anything. No, it's a reciprocal relationship of blessing between the one who is taught and the one who teaches. And so that's the vision of giving in the New Testament related to financial support. Now, let me mine out some principles for that and some results of that, because I think that's helpful for us to consider. So what are the, what are the, what's this giving to look like? Well, we, we see clearly from Paul's example of the Philippians and the way that they contributed to him that, it, that it's sacrificial. Epaphroditus had to risk his neck to get to Paul to, in order to take this financial gift that the Philippians were sending to him. And no doubt he had to risk it because Paul's in jail. It's clear from chapter 1. And so he's having to risk his neck, identify himself with a Christian who was in prison for being a Christian, and he's going to walk in and care for Paul, very well knowing that they're going to see, oh, he's, they're caring, he's caring for Paul, must be one of those. He's a Christian too. And so he's risking, risking his life to care for Paul. It's sacrificial, it's liberal, it's generous. But it's also exceedingly cheerful, isn't it? Isn't this what he wants to do? He's not being, Epaphroditus doesn't feel coerced. Paul's not guilt in the Philippian church. Like, hey, you know, I've really, I've, I'm kind of an apostle. I'm kind of important. I'm struggling in prison here, you know. It'd be nice if you got to send a check now and then, you know. He didn't say any of that because he doesn't trust in men. He trusts in God. And he's looking, he's not looking to be accused of being a peddler of the gospel, somebody just trying to get money from churches. In fact, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we read examples of him flat out turning it down because he doesn't want to be considered that way, because he knows what they're thinking. So, liberal, sacrificial, cheerful. There's a couple other biblical principles, though, that I, I want to turn you to. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So, just speaking of Corinthians, go back to 1 Corinthians 16 and look at 
verses 1 and 2. This is another aspect of, of giving that I think is important to underscore. Now concerning the collection for the saints. So keep in mind the collection of money uh, from, from members of the church is not just for leadership. It's for the church too. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do, number two, or verse two, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, just look at the principles here. On the first day of every week, that's Sunday. So the point is, is that it's consistent giving. It's regular giving. It's not haphazard and occasional. There's a consistency to it. I'm not saying that every, every Christian has to give every single Sunday. That's not the point. But the point is, is that there is a regularity to the giving that is occurring here. And notice, it's for everybody. On the first day of every week, each of you, every Christian is responsible to give financially. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. See, this means that giving is central and primary. It's not like we give at the end of the month when, when we see what's left. And if we have anything left, we'll give that to the church or to the saints or to spiritual causes. We're not going to do... No, he says... When on the first day of the week in this regular, consistent pattern, we're going to put something aside and we're going to store it up. We're going, to, we're going to intentionally do this. We're taking off the top. Or as Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all of your increase. So it comes off the top. It doesn't come out of the bottom. As he may prosper. So as he gets new income so that there will be no collecting when I come. So there's some principles as well. So we see principles of liberality, sacrifice, cheerfulness, faithfulness, consistency, regularity, and giving is central and primary. Now, what are the results of that? Because here's the issue. The Bible cares about your motivations. The Bible cares about why we give. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 Verses 6 through 8 describe what this motivation should look like. The point is this, Paul says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Don't you want a bountiful life, want a full life, a flourishing life, a blessed life? Then it's got to be a generous life. Jesus got exalted because he was generous. And we follow in his steps. He humbled himself to the point of death, the death of the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth. Why? Because he's the most generous man who ever lived. Most godlike man who ever lived. God is extremely generous. If I could say this reverently, God wakes up every day of his life and spends 100% of his time giving. 100% of his time. We are sitting here in these seats this morning, breathing with beating hearts because you have a giving God. You're clothed because of his generosity. You're healthy because he gave it to you. 
everything you have is from God. Everything I have, I stand here and preach with the mouth that God gave me. With a Bible I didn't write. With a mind I didn't create. And a salvation I didn't earn. It's all of grace. Life is all generous. How could we be stingy when we have a God like this? Oh, the accountability we owe him for his generosity towards us. But the motivation, notice, verse 7, each one must give exactly how much the pastor tells him. Is that the principle? That's a real good way into a cult. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. You give what you want to give. Why? Because we're after the Spirit here. We're not after man. We're not after law. We're after what God the Spirit does in people's lives. I don't want, I don't, I want what you decide to give under the leadership of the Spirit of God. Not reluctantly, oh, I've got to do it. Not under compulsion, okay. That's not the Spirit. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because God's a cheerful giver. He loves people like him. Verse 8. Here's a great motivation. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You won't go broke being generous. You won't. You'll go broke being not being generous. But God is able to make, notice, all grace abound to his cheerful givers. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, I think that covers all the life, you may abound in every good work. So that's support. Finally, point number three. We've looked at sharing with the church and support for the church. Now let's look at serving in the church, serving in the church. This is another way we give. You've heard it probably said before that, you know, God wants us to give our time, our talents, and our treasure. Heard that, right? Well, that's kind of neat. It kind of falls out what we're going this morning. Giving your treasure, your money, giving your time, that's sharing and service, and, and then your talents, your abilities, your gifts. Serving in the church. So, we're going to talk briefly about spiritual gifts. And it'll be very brief because I'm, I'm going to wrap up hopefully in about five minutes. So, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. This will be the last text we look at this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And after you... That's, verse, that's chapter 5. Chapter 4, verse 10. Get in the right chapter, Mark. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, 
Notice the purpose of gifts. The purpose of our gifts is to glorify God and serve others. I would say glorify God by serving others. The way we glorify God with our gifts is using them to serve each other. So being devoted to the fellowship is not so much a social privilege to enjoy as a responsibility and stewardship that we assume to share and support and serve each other. After all, remember this, our gifts don't belong to us. They belong to each other. They belong to God and each other. They don't belong to us. The gifts were given by God for another to be a blessing to others. So every gift, every Christian has a gift or gifts uh, to give to the body of Christ in terms of service, and every gift is important. might be helpful to define briefly what a spiritual gift is. A spiritual gift is an ability that comes to you freely from God for the purpose of ministering to needs so as to build up the Christian community in both size and depth. So every Christian has one or more, and they're all sovereignly chosen and bestowed by God. And our gifts must be, but even though they are empowered and bestowed by God, they must be motivated by love to be effective, right? 1 Corinthians 13 is right in the middle, that great love chapter that we hear at weddings all the time. Do you know what really the main point of that is? Is how you use your spiritual gifts effectively. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 13. All right, so next time you're at a Christian wedding and they read 1 Corinthians 13, everybody sit in the congregation and judge them for taking Scripture out of context. Just kidding. Hey, of course it applies beyond just that. But it's, all, it's mostly about spiritual encouragement and how to use your spiritual gifts effectively. Love is what activates them and makes them effective. They're no, they're no good without love. So all gifts, though, must be developed and exercised. We, they, don't, they come to us in raw form. We've got we to we develop them. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, to fan into flame the gift of God that has been given to you. In other words, work at it, cultivate it. It's not going to happen. 1 Timothy 4.14 says something similar. So the question is, we, I, we know this. We, we've heard about spiritual gifts before and, and where they are, what they are, and they basically fall into two camps. They're speaking gifts and they're serving gifts, according to Peter here. And some of us have one or the other. Some of us have both. And it's just all, but how do you find them? And this is where I want to conclude. How do you find them? Well, of course, you take a spiritual gift inventory. There's nothing wrong with spiritual gift inventories. But the aptitude approach is uniquely Western. You know, we take a test for everything. You know, the tradition, you just test for aptitude. Uh, but the problem with that is that it assumes that we know ourselves quite well, which is pride, which is a pretty strong American sin, because nobody knows us the way we know us. I know, I know, I know what I'm good at. No, you don't. You don't. Many of us do not know what we are good at. We think we're good at things. So then we go the other route. Maybe we'll go like, well, affinity. Like, like what, what human needs do I attract, uh, am I, do I interest me? And, and where do I feel like I can, what are my passions and my desires? And certainly that plays into it. And like I said before, sometimes we can discern our spiritual gifts by just asking ourselves what frustrates me about the church. You know what gets in your crawl and bothers you is probably an area you're gifted and need to help. Instead of griping about it, help. 
God has made you to gripe about it so that you will do something about it. And then ability. Like, what am I good at? What, what do people say that I'm effective in? And then there's, but I, I want to argue this. This is, this, is, this is my argument. I want to argue that you should start with availability. That is making yourself available to God for whatever he wants you to do. And then see what things need to be done in the church and then just do them. Just serve. Don't ask first about whether it matches your aptitude or your affinity or your ability. Um, when I came here, good grief, 15 years ago, um, by God's grace, I just tried to dive in. Tried lots of different stuff. I didn't know what I was good at. I, didn't, I was a 22-year-old kid, practically, just out of college. I, I look back at my college, and I'm like, there's some profound lack of wisdom at what you're good at. Like, I didn't choose a right major. I, I mean, I had I just looked back on it. This is, I thought I you know, knew all about myself. I didn't know anything about myself. And so just you know, sign up for nursery and you teach classes and you offer to help set up tables and you played my guitar and worked in the nursery and things. And, and you just do stuff. This is not unique to me. You guys just do stuff. Just do it. And then you really discover what kind of ministry you're particularly good at and what you see God blessing. So we ought not to first just look to our abilities or our affinities. If we gravitate too quickly to those areas, we might miss latent gifts that God has put in us that we're not even aware of. And you won't ever discover unless you just serve, just plug holes, offer to help, and in time see what God blesses. And over time, you can then check your affinities and your abilities and begin to specialize and really serve the body in that way. So, we've talked about giving this morning. Worship team, please come forward as I conclude. What is the ultimate, brothers and sisters, reason we give? Why do we share with the church? Why do we give our support for the church? Why do we serve in the church? 2 Corinthians 8 9 is the reason. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's why we do it. We do it because we're Jesus people. He was one who was impoverished for us, that we might lift others out of their poverty in all dimensions of life. So that's why we do it. Any other motivation is sub-Christian and non-Christian. The reason we do it is because this is what our Savior did for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together considering this aspect of, of giving, this call to fellowship in this way. May each of us uh, examine ourselves uh, in light of these truths, in light of the call to share and support and serve, and may we reflect deeply on, on our Savior, who he is, what he's done for us, so that our hearts might be increasingly melted and conformed to his love and to his attitudes and to his behavior. We pray all this in his great name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.